they're being called front end developer instead of junior developer. Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, a front end, but a front end developer needs to know needs like two years of react now right hey everybody and welcome to episode 292 of the ruby rose podcast this week on our panel we have brian hogan hello jerome hardaway hey everybody happy holidays jason sweat hello charles maxwood from devchat.tv and uh, this week we had a guest lined up to talk about boot camps and then we found out that everybody has feelings about this stuff so we're going to talk about it anyway um our guest wasn't able to make it we'll talk about it and then if we can get them back on then we will uh talk about it again i guess um I i'm curious as we get started uh, does anyone have experience with the boot camps jerome i know you kind of run something like a boot camp i have i actually i was one of the first recipients uh for the opportunity fund through general assembly as well oh okay so Years ago, so I have a, but that doesn't change how I uh, view boot camps in totality. I see good things, I see positive and negative things. When you know, I've been in this game for a for a minute now, so yeah. So I'm I'm just going to ask a question in general, and then uh, whoever wants to start answering can answering it, answer it. But it seems like there are a lot of ways that people come into programming. Is a boot camp the best way for somebody to come in? Um, or are there people out there where a boot camp is the best way for them to come in? Depends on the person and depends on the school. Those, um, what we've learned in our past when dealing with just for-profit boot camps is people who have like degrees that are more thought-forming, i.e. like journalists, journalism, designers, things like that nature, going to a boot camp is amazing because they already, you know, have a kind of user orientation idea that is already ingrained from their degrees, from practicing journalism or practicing design, things of that nature. And not so much for a lot of other people who, you know, their jobs or their degree may not be um, focused on, you know, giving people what they want or trying to um, solve problems that people feel or getting messages across to people. Uh, so that's where I see a lot of where code schools fail. They fail in that idea of, you know, as I said, basically code, our nonprofit, what we teach is there are three users. The first user is the guy that's going to touch your code behind you. The second user is uh, the, your boss who's paying you to code. And the third user is the person that's actually going to interface with your app. And the third user is more important than all than the other two users combined because that user can kill your app with just one bad review. Uh, and telling their friends things of that nature. So that's one thing that one of many things that I'm seeing in code schools that is not being touched or tapped is the idea of putting uh, thinking like we talk too much of thinking like a programmer in regards to learning how to solve problems with code instead of thinking, putting ourselves in the shoes of the user and figuring out, you know, what the, what the hell does the user actually want in an app? And we know that, you know, we all go from that like, Henry Ford statement of if I asked my customers what they want, they would have told me they wanted a faster horse. And while that that's true, you still can't go too far away from like the human psyche when it comes to building or creating anything. So that's what my opinion on that is. I have to agree with that. Um, I taught uh, college software development for four years until recently. Uh, and one of the biggest complaints that I would get from students is, yeah, I wish I had more time in the classroom to write code. I hate taking these uh, philosophy classes and these sociology classes that have nothing to do with what I'm going to be doing. And I'd always tell them, you have no idea how valuable those kinds of things are going to be for you, you know, five years from now, when you're trying to figure out what a user really means when they say something, or when you're trying to figure out what a stakeholder wants. And I always would tell the students that software is 20% writing code. And 80% dealing with people. You, you, yeah. th those things like accounting that you take for granted, or that econ class you really don't want to go to, those are those are things that are really, really sort of important. And so, if if you're going uh, going to the boot camp route, uh, you you may find yourself, as some people do later on, going, I I, I need to go get some knowledge in some other 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 areas as well. There's uh, there are many ways to learn to be a good software developer, but focusing on code alone and focusing on how to build applications alone uh, isn't a good long-term solution for your career, in my opinion. 
Yeah, I feel like perhaps one of the most important, if not the most important skills for a developer to have is to be able to talk with a non-technical stakeholder and figure out what the stakeholder needs and then translate that into software that serves that need, um, which is a lot harder than it might seem if, if you haven't done it. Yes, that is absolutely correct. <laughs> like, you took, Jason, you took the words right out of my mouth. You'd be amazed. We tell people all the time, if you can't talk to your code to like a sixth grader, then you don't know what you're talking about. And that's just the facts. You have to be able to break this down to a person who may have never touched a line of code a day in their life and has no intention. So that is a really important skill to have being able to just, you know, speak English, as my wife says, because I'm guilty of that more than more often than not when I'm talking about things I'm doing. She's like, all right, can you say that again? But this time with human words. And, and, and you also have to account for the fact that what the stakeholder tells you they need and what they actually need might not exactly be the same thing. Well, and, and so how do you how do you tell the difference between what they tell you they want and what's actually going to serve their purpose? Well, in non-tech aside, I mean, um, if you haven't worked with this guy that is like the genius programmer that shows up to work every week, puts his head down, doesn't talk to anybody, um, you know, and then gripes about how everybody else wrote the rest of the code, uh, just keep working in the industry. You'll, you'll work with them soon enough. And um, after a while, what winds up happening is they leave or the company, somebody in the company gets tired of them and makes them leave. And then you find out that they've been this huge drag on the team, even though they're extremely talented. Um, and, you know, in some cases, they pull in somebody that's, you know, quite a bit junior, um, but can learn and can work with the team. And it turns out that they're way more productive with the junior person that didn't have the skills, but was willing to learn and willing to contribute than they were with the genius person. So, you know, whatever the situation is, you know, those interpersonal skills and the ability to work on a team, you know, deal with people in that regard as well as dealing with the non-technical stakeholder is is critical as well and that's a really good point i'd be curious to hear how you guys have have built those skills in your careers for me it's it's two books especially have taught me a ton one is how to win friends and influence people and the other is the seven habits of highly effective people and both of those books i consider just psychology books and they help you understand what makes what makes people tick and that sort of thing what people's motivations are, how to persuade people to your way of thinking and that kind of thing, all of which are super valuable when you're working in any kind of team, including, for sure, a development team. There's, there's, those are two really good resources. And there's one more that I want to I wanna point out because it's, it seems a little bit weird to bring this up, but there's a book called Corporate Confidential. And it's a, basically a book of uh, ways you can totally damage your career. Uh, at a company uh, by breaking these sort of unspoken rules. And so it isn't so much about, you know, how to how to interact with people on, on that basic level. It's also uh, about certain ways that you can damage yourself without realizing that you're damaging yourself just because uh, not being aware of these kinds of social things that you might have picked up in uh, in other places. Um, and uh, you know, when I when I read that book the first time, I was thinking I I have done some of these things, and and now it explains why certain situations turned out the way they did for me. Do you remember uh, any examples? Uh, none that I want to share publicly. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 it it does talk about things. Like for example, it does talk about the book does talk talk about how important it is to um, be the person that says yes to things, but not all the time. You know, strike uh -huh. that, you know, when, because you guys, you, I see a lot of eager, eager developers who just come out and they, they, they want to make an impression on everybody. So they're always, yeah, I'll take that on. Yeah, I'll take that on. Yeah, I'll take that on. Only to end up being known as the person who says yes a lot, but never delivers. Yeah. And so it talks about those kinds of important things. Those are the kinds of things. So I'm not going to be the first person to say everyone should have a degree in computer science, be a programmer, because some of the best programmers I've ever met in my entire life never had a CS degree. They had a degree in history or a degree in philosophy. Uh, and then they learned to code. Um, and, and, and that's, and that's not the same for everybody. Now I'm not gonna get, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get down on computer science degrees. 
And I'm not even going to say that you have to go to a four-year prestigious college, but what I'm going to say is that the biggest advantage that you get going through a four-year college that's focused on liberal arts and your major is that you get a learning path that takes you down many places that you wouldn't go on your own. You're, if you're the kind of person who really likes to code, you're probably not going to be that interested in picking up a you know, picking up a book or taking an online course on, let's say, art history. But there are things that are very applicable to your 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 base of understanding. If you do take that class, you'll be surprised by that. So they, what we're really talking about when we talk about boot camps and technical colleges and vocational schools and four-year colleges and online courses, we're talking about some people have gotten together and they laid out what they believe is a good learning plan. And that may not work for you. That may work better for me than it works for somebody else. But it is a learning plan. And there are advantages and disadvantages to both. So I don't want anybody to come away from this thinking that, you know, uh, Brian is very much anti-boot camp or uh, so-and-so is very, uh, very pro-college. But I did want to make that make that point um, well, that they are different learning paths. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting that you bring that up, Brian, because what I'm kind of hearing from you is the idea of, of – Getting or giving yourself a really well-rounded education because you'll get things from other disciplines that you can bring back to programming that will be helpful that, that you might not have picked up if you were focusing on programming alone. Is, is that kind of the right takeaway? That's exactly it. One of my biggest pastimes is music. I love to do stuff with music, but I find there's so many ways that music intersects with code. And if you talk to a lot of programmers that have a similar background to mine, we'll kind of say the same thing. There's a lot in there's a lot in 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 tune with with music and software development. And then you talk to other developers who who it turns out their hobby is woodworking. And there's a lot of things that they can draw from woodworking and other kinds of crafts that they can bring into in, into code. So. I'm sure that there are people who um, uh, who have other other liberal arts backgrounds. I know I know a great uh, a great technical person, great coder, whose background is in linguistics. Um, so there's a lot of different things that that those, those other things that you might you might out of hand dismiss. Um, and from my own personal experience, I can tell you, when I was in college, I hated accounting. I hated accounting and I just, I couldn't focus. I couldn't pay attention. I wanted to go write code. So I, instead of doing my accounting homework, I'd be writing code. Uh, you know, there's a, whether you believe in karma or not, the first system I had to work on when I was a graduate was an accounting system. So I got to learn accounting anyway. Um, had I paid attention better, I probably wouldn't have had to read accounting books while I was writing code for an accounting system. Yeah, I just I just found what you said really interesting, Brian, because I kind of look at look at that the same way. Um, I'm a, a really big reader, but technical books make up like a really small slice of the pie as far as the kinds of stuff that I read goes. Because um, I have that same kind of belief that you do um, that that when you read other stuff or or you learn other stuff in whatever way it might be, you can bring that back to programming. Um, I remember I was reading this, this Carl Sagan book, I forget which one it was, but he, he studied, I think, physics at the university of Chicago. And he said that at the university of Chicago, um, they wouldn't have dreamed of, of putting a uh, physics student through the physics program without also teaching them all about Plato and Aristotle and all kinds of um, ancient history and stuff like that. And I thought that was really fascinating that they placed such high importance on that stuff that seemingly doesn't have anything at all to do with physics. Um, but maybe there's, there's something to that, you know? There is, but there's also something that I came across while teaching. It's something that I will fully admit that I was guilty of doing when I started teaching. Uh, and it's something that I see other software developers, uh, they were a little guilty of that when they start teaching, and they eventually you eventually grow out of it. But you tend to you 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 model the behavior that you, the way in the way you were taught, and so you sort of the things that you feel are important are the things that you want to uh, impress upon your students. So, for example, if you think it's really important for students to understand how to count in binary before they can write a line of code then that sort of translates into the way that the curriculum gets developed, too. So while it is good to be well-rounded, it's also good for the person who's doing the instruction and creating the curriculum to be mindful of their own biases, too. 
and and you know because you can get you can get pretty off track. I think it's yeah, interesting because I, I tend to be more single-minded and focused. And so if I'm going to learn, say, at, at this point, let's say I was going to learn a new language, I mean, I would just sit down and just focus in and learn that language. And, you know, it's been the same way with most of my coding career. I wanted to learn Rails so that I could, uh, you know, build the systems that I needed to build. And so I just, I built Rails. I wanted to be an electrical engineer and then a computer a design engineer, and so that's what I did in college. And a lot of the, you know, the the other classes, the um, the arts classes, the English classes and stuff, they really felt like a waste of time to me. And, you know, that's not to say that what I w was learning there wasn't important, and, you know, I have a little bit different perspective on it now, but I still feel like um, I took a lot of classes that really didn't benefit me much. And, you know, and so yeah, those, those general classes that everybody has to take. I, I don't know. I mean, um, I, I think it's different, it's different for different people. And for me, I, I would have been just as happy to just take the technical classes, learn the stuff that I needed in order to do the job that I wanted to have, and then, you know, pick this stuff well, later on when I'm actually interested in it and want to apply myself mm -hmm. to it. Well, that's the thing, though, is, 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 is if, if that's kind of what I was getting at before, is that you don't really know. We don't really know what we're interested in, uh, unless someone direct, you know, makes us do it. For example, that's kind of that's kind of the theory behind that. Is you wouldn't take those classes on your own because you'd find other things that you're interested in doing instead, learning a new pro, learning a new programming language, something like that. And it wouldn't be until there was, you know, that's because that's the mentality I have. That's the mentality I always had. But then, sort of, sort of being around students for a very long time. Seeing them develop into software developers, you know, there, there are some relationships I have with students that are now getting close to 20 years. And, and you know, looking back and, and looking at my progression and their progression and seeing, wow, you know, those classes individually didn't probably have any real impact. But as a whole, they did because they, expo because they exposed, you know, certain ideas. For example, I wasted a whole bunch of time in uh, in one of my classes because the instructor was just terrible. I got nothing out of that class, except I did learn how to deal with an instructor who was terrible, which then translated into something much more useful on the job later on. I still do that class too. <laughs> as a person who doesn't have any, uh, whose degree has absolutely nothing to do with tech, I literally wouldn't change anything for the world. I think my working with criminal justice and working in business actually made me made me a stronger programmer for me to be able to focus on solving problems for other uh, for other people than even with our own uh, nonprofit just I'm able to see things through like like uh, what Hogan said change, seeing things through the user's eyes and uh, I wanted to piggyback uh, go back to the teamwork part. Uh, Jason, he brought up two books, or really good books, and I was going to say I think that was a much easier way to learn teamwork than how I did, which was through the military, uh, being put in a room with like 40 dudes that you don't even know and being forced to work together or get in trouble and push Texas is uh, pretty much the crappiest way to learn how to do be a team, but it actually works pretty well. Our country's been doing it for 200-something odd years. But uh, I would rather, if I had to do that part all over again, basic and reading those two books, I would probably choose those two books. Interesting. Let's take a break from this episode and really quickly talk about finding a job. You know, searching for a job can feel stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through an interview process just to find out that the very end that the salary offer or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Well, there's a solution. Hired.com is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities. They make the job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of how and when you connect with compelling opportunities. And after completing one simple application, top employers apply to you. And the best part is, is that you get money. That's right. They pay you if you get a job through them. Listeners to this show 
can earn double their normal hiring bonus by signing up with the show's link. That's right. You get $2,000 instead of $1,000. So go sign up at Hired.com slash podcast. One other thing I just want to pile on that I think um, a lot of boot camps have a deficiency in is just teaching people how to have a career, how to find a job. Um, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to because I've opened things up so that people can actually get on my schedule for 15 minutes and talk to me if they're a podcast listener. Um, if you want to do that, you can just go to devchat.tv slash 15 minutes. It's still an opening thing that you can do. Um, and, uh, you know, I get these people in there and they're like, yeah, I went through a boot camp and I thought I was going to have a job when I got out and it turned out that I didn't and I don't even know, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And I'm like, well, didn't they teach you how to find a job? Well, no, they seemed more interested in collecting their fee or in just teaching us the code part of it. And, you know, I, I feel like that's a huge disservice because a lot of people feel like that's the promise that is being made by these boot camps. And so I, I know wow. some boot camps do a better job than others, depending on how well connected their founders are, but... Yeah, I was going to say that. And also, it, I think... They're, they call it their outcomes team, and we actually, uh, we've talked to several code schools about it. Um, the outcomes team is really, they, like, they have a lot of things that are already put into the place that makes you qualified to use outcomes or the careers team. And uh, one of the things, like, for instance, uh, the organization with the founder who we were going to speak to early, um, earlier today, his, uh, his code school if you're in a job for two weeks, then, you know, they don't have to uh, talk to you anymore. So it's something like, you know, usually it's a seven to 14 day window where you, you know, you're a measurable outcome and you can't, and they don't teach you how to do those. They have that team that can help you the first time, but after the first time, you know, they're pretty much, you're on your own. If you can't figure it out, then you're, you know, out of luck. And that's one thing that we really, uh, that we tell, talk to other code schools about is, hey, you guys, if you're going to be working with veterans, you might want to actually educate them on how to become more self-sufficient in the idea of job hunting in the tech um, industry and the tech space and possibly just spread that out, you know, to the entire, uh, to your entire educational, uh, I guess your entire cohort, because that's something that, like, like I said, I've gone to pretty much every code school in this, like, country and, we see that across the board where they, for that outcome, or that dream of the that promise of a job, they have a team that handles all that stuff from resume writing to teaching you how to have your LinkedIn to look. Uh, but after that first job or if you have to meet these certain requirements to be considered in the careers, like if you miss a meeting or something, they can they have the right to kick you off of their, uh, out of their metrics. So when they're saying like, you know, this person saying, oh, they didn't get a job. But then they're like, oh, well, read the contract. Uh, you And you missed this appointment that we have record for. So you know what we're counting against our metrics. And stuff like that happens all the time. Where they're, you know, oh, we're 90% in 90 days. But, you know, a small percentage of the people that are saying, hey, you know, it's a little bit more than that. You're like, well, they didn't meet our, they didn't meet the metrics requirement on their end. So we see that often. And we try to, where we talk to them. Like we try to offer solutions and talk to the code schools about these are some things you need to add because we're seeing that um, not so much like after the you know and from college to code schools after the first year or graduating those that first year is like the most important year. So what we're seeing is after that first year, that's when it becomes significantly harder for people who have graduated code schools because they're usually ready to move on to like a second job if they don't have the first job that they really want it. And that's when it gets harder because you're not dealing with jobs that are within your uh, school's network. You're dealing with the real job market and the real coding interviews and things of that nature. So it's, you know, it's difficult for them to get through that when it comes to they never had to do some of these things because the school already had a relationship with those companies or they, you know, one thing that a lot of code schools fail on is a, the technical interview. They don't teach enough of the problem solving and computer science fundamentals. And some places without the CS fundamentals, you know, they won't even look at you. Like you have to at least like know what going back to what Hogan said, you have to at least know about binary tree or be able to understand big O notation, things of that nature before they even like speak to you because they're not 
you know, I, we were at Facebook and that was their biggest complaint was that these a lot of the code schoolers are coming through and they don't even know, you know, they don't know the basics. So, oh, well, I'd, I'd like to offer a little bit of a maybe different perspective on that. Um, so just a, a tiny bit about my background. I don't have a degree in anything. I went to a little bit of college for computer science and I always did great on the homework um, and always did horrible on the tests. And so I don't really know anything as far as what I was supposed to learn in school. I didn't really learn it. So stuff like big O notation and, and all that kind of stuff, I don't know those things. Um, and it really hasn't hindered me in my career very much. There have definitely been a couple occasions, I'm sure, although I can't recall them right now, where I've had a technical screening where those issues have, have been a problem for me. Um, but it's almost like the, the, more, the more I go in, in years, the less the technical stuff even comes up at all. Because um, most people aren't going to be interviewing at, at big companies that have their hiring processes really down. Uh, you know, most businesses in general are small businesses and most people, I would, I would venture to guess that most people in general work for small businesses and probably most programmers are going to be working for small businesses too, um, where that stuff probably isn't really going to come into the picture too much. I agree. But what you do I, have I, to have. No, I agree. I agree with that too. And that's what we saw. That's what we saw, you know, with, with our placement, there were, there weren't, um, if you want to go work at Facebook, um, that's, that's different than if you want to go work for, you know, a, a local software development company. There's, there's, there's two parts in that. Um, one of the things that I want to just circle back to really quick, that I thought was very interesting. The discussion was kind of getting on to, you know, how much, how much help, how much help should, uh, should someone provide when, uh, when a student graduates, how much help should, should they provide when, you know, when they, when they already, when they get a job, you know, and they want to move on is the place that educated them really the place that's responsible for doing that? Uh, or is it more along the lines of the code school held their hands so much in getting their first job that they, they don't have the skills that they need to, to get the second job. I, I was just looking for some clarification on that. Well, I think they they could do a, a, one certain thing, which is to like tell them what a job search is, um, and then give them enough information that they can chase down the rest of the answers themselves. Because I think a lot of people fundamentally misunderstand what a job search is, and like just just how to go about it from a very fundamental standpoint. Um, I, I can employment, tie a lot of this together. Um, mm -hmm. For you and, and really, so I, I know people that have gone through boot camps and the boot camp really didn't help them find a job and they kind of found it on their own. And I know people who the boot camp has helped them find a job. And, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about this as kind of what are the expectations and what are reasonable expectations and whose responsibility is what. And I think ultimately a lot of it just comes down to um, what the boot camp has promised. So if the boot camp basically says, um, you're going to come out of here with a job, then I think they have a responsibility to help people find their first job. If yeah. you're telling people that, hey, we're going to teach you how to code and we'll introduce you to some folks. And then, you know, if you're kind of a self-starter go-getter, then you'll probably have one. And if you're not, then you may not. You may have to work a little harder for it. I think that's fair. Um, and then the other thing is, is, yeah, I think they should give them some of the tools. I mean, when we're talking about these small businesses, I mean, the, the small businesses, what they care about is what can you do for me? And so if, if the boot camp, and, and for me, this is, this is why the, the, the open market works well, is that the, the boot camps that are doing well at this, that are connected to the communities, that understand the jobs, that understand the companies that are hiring people, and can go and teach these folks how to do what these companies need, and then put them out there and gain a little bit of a reputation for a place where people can come and get the people that can do the job. And, you know, they get a little bit of a break on price because these folks really want their first job. Um, I, I think it works all around. Um, well, I, 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 I worry these, about, I I worry about of, that. I think a lot I of these boot camps sell, sell something that they're not delivering. And I think that's but where I, some of the problem comes in. 
But I but I worry about the a, a boot camp working closely with businesses to fill jobs because what happens when the job changes? Will the student have the skills? Will the developer have the skills to migrate to the next thing that that will inevitably come? Well, I hundred percent agree with Hogan. We're seeing that in the community when school when the businesses when the school focuses less on or less on getting the core programming skills and more on the business relationships. It's harder for those graduates to adapt to the job changes. Yeah, but the if, I'm, is, if I'm being these, cynical, if these I'm, these it, markets are, are synergistic. I'm not saying that the the boot camp should teach to the test or to the job. What I'm saying is is that they should be talking to these businesses and making sure that they understand what they need, so the people coming out of the boot camp, along with the fundamentals, have the skills that these businesses need. And if they're if they're communicating well with the other market that they're serving, then they can tailor their curriculum uh, a bit to where they're actually putting people out there who are hireable because they can solve more problems for these businesses. That's, that's oh. a really good point. What I was going to say earlier about the, the job search is employment and running a business aren't two different things. They're just two different points on a continuum. Um, and if you're looking for a job, you're basically a one-person service business, um, and, and you're looking for the equivalent of a client, although you don't use that word for it. Um, and so if you want to sell your service, you have to know how to, to sell and market your service, and a job hunt is a sales and marketing activity. But I think most job seekers don't bother to educate themselves in the areas of sales and marketing uh, very much or, or at all. Um, so selling is the activity of having a conversation with a prospect, um, and seeing if it's, if it's right for that prospect to, to buy what you're selling and marketing is everything you do to get to that point. And I think a lot of people, they don't even make that distinction to begin with, which is a really useful distinction to make. And then beyond that, they don't know how to do those things. So I think just telling students that much would be a huge thing that boot camps do that, um, that I don't know if boot camps do that or not because I haven't had that exposure, but I do know that that's something that a lot of job seekers are lacking. I, I find that it varies from boot camp to boot camp. Some of them do really well at some of this stuff, and some of them don't. Yes, uh, same Indeed. experience here. Indeed. And that's the thing. And so I, I think if there's any practical thing that comes out of this, if somebody's listening to this and they're new, is instead of just saying there's a boot camp in the big town near me, um, and so I'm going to go and sign up, uh, actually check them out. Go find out what they're about. Go find out how they approach this. Go find out how well their graduates place. Talk to a few people who have been through the boot camp. If you're going to drop $12,000 to go through a six-month program, it's worth an hour of your time, two hours of your time, to make sure that it's a good investment. Uh, yes, I can't. I, I, oh man, I can't. Uh, there was an individual in the community. I, I, uh, darn it, I can't even remember this guy's name. But he started this dev school. I don't know if you guys heard that horror story of like the dev school horror story of 2016, in which he started an online school and then he just vanished and you know, like just took all the troops, his uh, not troops, uh, his uh, students' money. And he was gone after like maybe one or two cohorts. Come to find out, a lot of stuff. He, you know, he was a really good Rails developer. He actually worked with Code Mentor when it, on Code Mentor sometimes when he was between sessions and things of that nature. But you know, he was just a really bad person, and he ended up taking uh, a lot of his uh, students' money. And I think a couple of the code schools stepped up and helped those students that they did not have. Uh, they paid this guy and weren't getting education, and they covered them, letting them uh, learn at their schools for zero cost. But that, I can't stress enough research uh, over and over and over again. This guy who started his dev school, we were actually, uh, our nonprofit was in the process of hiring him until we found things found that just didn't seem like right on his, uh, when we did our background check, and we decided, no, we're not going to bring uh, this person on our team. And thankfully, we didn't because this guy, he did his own thing. He, it was just really, really uh, a horrible experience. If you guys want to, I know Course Report, TechCrunch, pretty much everybody in tech covered the story of dev school just 
um, disappearing off the face of the earth with all his students' money. So uh, that is a horror story that should, you know, $12,000, like I said, 12, I think the last, actually the lowest, the highest I've seen is like 17 to 21 grand. And that's a lot of money to put down out of pocket or to go through like a micro loan company and, you know, like upstart or something because that's what students are doing now. But that's a lot of money to pull out just to uh, have your school disappear. So please research, research as much as you can. I, I, I can't agree with that more. That is, it's a, it was a really sad story to hear about that. And it was really just, it isn't, this, this, this happens with, with colleges too. This happens with, you know, with for-profit colleges and things like that too. Uh, and, and it's just, you know, you really do, you really do need to put, put a lot of time and, and, and look for references and things like that when you're going out there. Um, you just hate to see that happen to people that are trying to make a better life for themselves. Um, I, can we talk about placement for a moment? Because one of the questions that, uh, has always come up, you know, for, for, you know, my students, um, has always been, you know, uh, th- there's an expectation that they're going to finish a program and they're going to get a job. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I have students that are bright. They're very good, competent programmers that are having a hard time finding entry-level positions. It seems that our industry is very interested right now in filling senior positions and not terribly interested in entry-level positions. Um, and and I, I, I've always wondered, I'm not seeing job, ad, job postings for entry-level positions, yet I see boot camps starting up all the time. Um, looking to place programmers in entry-level positions. So I'm sort of wondering, where are these jobs at that they're, that the boot camps are filling if we're not seeing job postings for entry-level junior developers? They're being called front-end developer instead of junior developer. That's what we're <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but, a front end, but a front end developer needs to know, needs like two years of React now, right? I'm going to yeah. play that back on JavaScript Jabber. <laughs> yeah, that's, what they're, that's what they're calling it now. Like it's, they're using, uh, I'm seeing that this idea of if you train for, if you uh, aim for the stars and land on a cloud, so if you learn full stack, they'll minimum, like they'll hire you for front end. And then as you move on, they'll get you for thing, other things. Now, I am seeing junior developer positions, but not in the jobs and the stacks that the boot camps are teaching. Now, that is where the problems happen. We're teaching all the boot camps and things are teaching JavaScript and uh, Ruby, but it seems that when it comes to like entry-level uh, positions, .NET and Java is being a lot more open to it. I'm seeing people go to these schools and then pick up Java afterwards and then go to these junior positions. So that's one thing that we're seeing out there in the industry. But outside of that, we're literally seeing, uh, I'm seeing people, unless you're in like uh, one of the, some of the cooler areas that have a more robust understanding of how to hire, how to cultivate developers. I know San Francisco and Seattle, they're doing really good jobs of that. What we're seeing is, uh, these guys are getting put on. If you're, it's easier to learn full stack and get a front end developer job than it is just try to find a junior developer developer position or like these uh, going through talent agencies or hiring uh, agencies, which suck, but well, for the most part. But they are also they seem to be the gatekeepers to some of the more junior positions. But when you're talking about like full stack rails. Yeah, everybody wants like one year of production experience um, as you go further out east. And that's one thing. So, you know, if you're looking for that experience, go through uh, like code.org. Yeah, code.gov. And they have a bunch of high level, like a bunch of like really cool Rails projects that they're working on for the government. That I've always, every time I speak to a civilian and they're looking for those type of jobs, I'm like, yo. These are, this is something that you should be working on and working with so that you can show that, you know what, you were able to do something big or work on something big because we had a small part and you didn't blow anything up. That's a really great thing to have on your resume and your portfolio. Well, so, I, can offer, I can offer a perspective on junior dev placement just based on my own experience when I was a junior developer and how I got my first couple jobs. I was pretty lucky in that my dad is a programmer, and my very first programming job was working for my dad. Uh, so from ages 16 to 18, I worked for my dad. 
thinking back, what I know now, thinking back to the kind of work I did then, I'm just horrified that anybody allowed me to do what I did because there was no version control or anything and just copying and pasting stuff from one place to another. Um, but that was my first experience, which was kind of handed to me. Um, when I moved away for college, I couldn't work for my dad anymore. And I had a hard time getting another programming job because I didn't have any real experience. All I had was two years of, of working for my dad doing, uh, Delphi stuff, which I don't think was very common in the job market. So I had to be pretty resourceful. Um, it wasn't until, so I, I stopped working for my dad in 2002. It wasn't until 2005 that I got my first like real programming job. And I got that really by just weaseling my way into it. Um, I saw an ad somewhere. I think it was the actual newspaper where I saw the ad. And I applied to it, and I went and talked to the people, and I didn't even come close to getting the job. They, they basically told me to get lost. Um, and then about six months later, I saw the same ad again. And I'm like, okay, you guys still haven't found anybody. You obviously still need somebody. I contacted, again, I contacted them again and basically said that. Um, they brought me in to interview me again, and this time they hired me. And so that was just kind of sheer um, uh, persistence, how I got my first programming job. And I was totally unqualified, and I didn't try to lie or anything to, to get my way in. I was just persistent about it. And I said, you know, if you hire me to do this, I can figure it out and do it. And I did figure it out. Yeah. Um, so that's one way to, to go about it. This episode is sponsored by Compose.io. Databases are arguably the most difficult part of the stack to manage. The last thing you want is to wake up at 4 a.m. because the database failed and you have no backups. Compose has all that covered for you, so rest assured that your database is fast, reliable, and always on. It's production-ready cloud databases on AWS and GCP for SoftLayer. So go check them out. You can pick from nine databases including MongoDB, Elasticsearch, Redis, RethinkDB, MySQL, and one of the latest, ScyllaDB, which is a fast drop-in replacement for Cassandra. All databases come with guaranteed RAM, IOPs, and CPU that auto-scale. Automatic daily and on-demand backups, high availability nodes, security you can count on with, with private VLAN, IP whitelisting, SSH and SSL, two-factor authentication, and much more. Deploy your database in minutes, and they'll take care of all of the administrative tasks like patches and upgrades. Set up as fast and easy, so go try them out for 30 days free at compose.com devchat. I'm actually working on a book on this, and, and my perspective on this also comes down to um, the way that people look for employees or look for programmers. Um, so there aren't enough senior devs to fill all the senior dev jobs, and that's why you see them listed on job boards and such. And you don't see as many of the junior jobs because essentially the way people find people is they first look in their own network. So who do I know that's going to find a job or that, you know, that can do this job? And then if they don't know anybody, then they go and look at the people that they trust and see if they know anybody. So usually that's their coworkers, people on their team, people in the company. Do you know anybody who can do this job? Because if they come with a reference, it's less risky. And then if that doesn't work, then they start looking around the community and they go, okay, well, how can I know if somebody's really a top-notch uh, candidate? And so usually what happens is they'll wind up going to the local code meetup or something like that and seeing who's there and seeing if they can meet somebody who looks good. Or they'll go to the, the local group's mailing list and do the same thing. Um, they'll go to online communities and, and find people, you know, maybe who can work remotely. And then after all that, if all of that fails them, then they actually go list the job. And yeah, so, Chuck, everything you just said, that's, that's my exact experience, yeah. too. Yep. I, I, so, I, just, I just have some, I just, have some just a tiny bit of feedback on that because one of the things that we always talk about you know, as software developers is you know, making, sure you, making sure that you get involved in the community. Yes. You know, do some open source things. Uh, go to the meetups, go things like that. I can tell you that most of the students that I had were – they just weren't able to do those kinds of things because when they got done with class, they went to work. Mm, yeah. uh, when they went, when they got done with when they got done with work, they took care of their kids. Uh, there are a lot of people who 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 are lucky enough to be able to say, "Yeah, the way to get a job in this field is to go out and do open source work and get involved in the community and make an, and be a network." But what do you do for those people who can't do that? 
Yeah, that's tricky. So we, I think we have to be very careful with the advice we give on how to get a job in the field. It, it, it's very easy to say, well, I was able to do it because I didn't have any kids. You know, I, I, was able to, I was able to go to meetups and I was able to do those kinds of things. I didn't have those other obligations. But gosh, where would I be if I had kids? Or where would I be if my wife and I both had to work to put food on the table um, and I had to get my homework done around that same, around that same time? I think that's a fair criticism. Um, I'm also just going to point out that this is the nature of the market, and that's the way people look for people. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, if you want that job, I mean, that's the most effective way to find it. If you can't do that, then yeah, what do you do? And and to be honest, I don't know if there's a good answer. I mean, you have to spend some of the time finding these people and getting to them before they get far enough down the list to where you can't participate at that level. You know, so you well, I have a response to, to what Brian said. Um, basically, I think what, what we're talking about, at least one thing we're talking about, is, is differentiating yourself a little bit. Like if you go to a meetup group, and especially if you give a talk or something, then you're somebody. And they have a, somebody going there looking for employees has a way to decide who to talk to. It's like, well, the person uh, who gave the presentation, they must know what they're talking about. And you don't need to wait until you know a lot of stuff to give those presentations, by the way. So um, or you can do some writing online. But, but to speak to like, you know, people who have kids and jobs and stuff like that, um, speaking from my own experience as somebody who has had to make time from you know, all your time is already spoken for, but somehow you still have to make some extra time, there's one single thing that I've, that I've found has been effective. Um, and that is simply to shift my whole day up a little bit. So the, the worst advice I've ever heard, um, is, is I was asking somebody for some business advice and their advice was to sleep less. And that's the dumbest advice you can possibly give. Um, <laughs> yeah, <it but> is. <laughs> what I have found is, you know, instead of, uh, you know, waking up at, at six and going to bed at, uh, 11 or whatever, wake up at five and go to bed at 10 or whatever it is. I'm not very good at, at math, but, um, uh, just shifting your day up a little bit. It's amazing. The productivity difference, at least for me of getting up. And part of that is like, if you get up super early, like your kids probably aren't awake yet. And like a lot of people aren't awake yet. So they're not, uh, interfering with your productivity and stuff like that. So that's the one piece of advice I would give to somebody with not very much time. And you somehow have to make time that has helped me. One thing I'm going to yeah. add to that, though, is, I mean, that's prime time because it's not just, oh, well, now I have an hour to spend. It's an hour you can spend writing blog posts or writing open source or contributing to the community in these ways that get you noticed. So it's not just, oh, I'm getting up and I'm going to feel more productive. I mean, it's time where you get up, you do the right things to wake up and be in that place where then you can go out and make these contributions that get you noticed. Yeah, I, I asked that question in somewhat of a rhetorical because I wanted to hear what other people had to say about it. And I think it's important to address it. And I'll tell you the advice I have given everybody and the people who have taken it, it's worked well for them. Um, a half an hour a day. Make it a habit. Make a habit. Um, this is what I do personally, and I, I have done it since college. Make make it a, Make it a habit to invest a half an hour a day in your own personal development. And then it, when it becomes a habit, it is literally something that you just you just do without thinking about it. And it's it's much easier because if you're a very busy person, you can't just say, ah, I'm just going to watch TV tonight. I'm going to blow off tonight and I'll blow off tomorrow night. And then I'll, I'll work on I'll, – I'll spend all day Saturday learning React, for example. Because this isn't just for people who are getting started. This is for people who want to keep going, who oh, keep totally. wanting to learn that – keep wanting to learn the thing. Saturday comes and all of a sudden there's a wedding you got to go to that you forgot about or there's a kid's soccer game you don't want to miss. Well, now your Saturday is gone. If you had just pick away a half an hour every day and you had to miss one of those, it's not as big of a loss as missing a whole day of your professional development. Actually, and this is this is advice I've given to authors who want to finish their books on time. This is advice I've given to students who want to better themselves. This is advice I've given to programmers who want to learn the who who feel they're so stretched they can't learn the next new thing. You'd be surprised uh, how many hours a half an hour a day adds up to in the course of three months. I was going to say that I actually follow both of those. I shift my day up and I uh, try to do thirty minutes of self education every day 
it's kind of, you know, that early to bed, early to rise thought process. It's like, oh, you know, if I wake up at 4.30, I can work out and do code, and I won't have uh, to have any of that time interrupted with my family or, like, with students and things of that nature. So I, I think a combination of both would be, like, like one of the best things you can do. Yeah, I'm going to put a, uh, uh, another book recommendation out there for this. It's called The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. And he just talks about how to get your day started so that you're at peak performance first thing in the morning. And, you know, he, he basically says, you know, to set up a morning routine. And if, yeah, if you get up at 4.30 or 5 o'clock or, you know, if you don't have to be to work till 10, then get up at 8 or 9. I mean, whatever works for you. But you get up, you do, he has a couple of things that help you wake up and be ready to go. And then, yeah, you just work that in. So you do that 30 minutes of, of uh, self-improvement first thing in the morning and there's nothing else that's going to conflict with it because nobody's planning stuff into your day at 5 a.m. and as you're as you're doing that yeah it becomes a habit but it's the first thing you do so you just get it out of the way and then it's it's never going to not happen because it's just part of the thing that you do. Uh, you'd be surprised of who would add something to your calendar at like five in the morning. Like, I mean, Charles, you're married, so I know that like your wife, like you just wake up like, oh, why do I have this honey do list? I'm like, <laughs> like I, my calendar just buzzed. So someone added something to your calendar, and if, if it's before six a.m., it's usually my wife has added something she wants me to do. I'm like, dang, hot. So. Um, I don't know if anybody else is guilty of that um, or has that issue, but I have that issue all the time. Uh, but my favorite book when it came to like changing uh, my life and my thought processes, uh, Way of the Seal. If anybody's ever read that book, it's a great book in regards to, like, you know, I started waking up at 4.30 every morning because seals, they wake up at 4.30 every morning for no reason, um, outside of the fact that to prepare better for the day. And, you know, the more time you have to prepare yourself, the less time you're, you know, less opportunity you have to jeopardize and having a pick between your own self improvement versus what the day may throw at you. Uh, you know, if you do your education, you do your workout, you make sure everything that you need is already done for you to feel like be happy is done out the way first thing in the morning. Then whatever the world throws at you, you're prepared for. And you know, I already was an early riser because almost uh, time makes you wake up early. So it, you know, fit perfectly into my life. So I want to bring this I back around. I feel like around. there's... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Chuck. I, I just want to bring it back around. I mean, we've been talking about boot camps and coming into programming. Um, and we've, we're, we've already been at this for almost an hour, which is usually when we start wrapping up. Um, but what I'm looking for, I guess, is kind of after all, everything that we've talked about, if people want to get into programming... Is this the way to go, or how do you decide if this is the way to go? I think this is a way to go, and I think it depends on that person. Uh, not every program is right. Like, you know, I would have lost my mind if I had to go through, like, the computer science program at, like, at any college because I absolutely hate math. I don't know for the rest of you guys, but math, like, math classes – I ended up having in high school having to go through every all my math classes in one year because I absolutely hated them and I didn't want to do it. So I just like, all right, let me get this stuff out of the way. Don't want to do it. Um, and that varies from, from person to person. Uh, some people are going to be great going to CS route in school. Some people, you know, they go, they have enough uh, EQ and IQ to be able to go through a, a code school boot camp and they're able to knock things out. What I think it is is that a person needs to actually shop and look at all of their options and see what, you know, have an actual plan. The problem that I'm seeing is that kids, I keep saying kids, have these people like older than me, um, people, they end up going through these programs and they don't have a plan, of, like an action plan for their life or what they want to get out of this. And that's one thing that I recommend, regardless of what path you're going, have your own plan of um, Write a plan while you're going through the process of what do you want to do in the end with the skill? Like, what is your goals? What, and, you know, if you're wanting to work at XYZ, then you have to understand there's a path to get to that location. If you want to work at a local business, 
understand there's a path to work in that. You may not go into a code school in New York if you're going to move back. Uh, like I have one person who um, was a colleague at General Assembly. They moved back to like South Carolina where the stack that um, were a the code school we went to did not have a network in the Carolinas and B, they didn't have uh, they did they weren't big Ruby or JavaScript towns. They were a Java .NET C town. So if you're going, you know, proper planning, don't go spend seventeen, twenty one thousand dollars at, you know, a code school and then move somewhere that they don't even think about that language. They're only doing .NET stuff. And these are the things that I'm seeing a lot of. That's my, whether CS or anything else, plan. I think that's the biggest thing that you should take away from this. Like, not everything's right, but you should form a plan based upon what you do or what you want out of it. Absolutely. That is that is so well put. Um, I, I want to add, so as, like I said, as someone who's who's taught um, at the college level, my my thoughts on this uh, if you if you're if you're looking to get into software development don't pay anybody any money to learn how to code because there are lots of resources out there for you to learn the basics of of programming on your own do that first decide if you really like the idea and you like uh, you like struggling with that kind of stuff uh, because what I can promise you is that no college or boot camp can guarantee you a job you have to attend the college classes and the, or the boot camp. You have to do all the assignments. You have to put in the work, and then you have to put in the legwork to get out there and get the job. Um, so the pathway is going to be up to you to decide what you want to do. Um, no matter which way you choose, you're going to have to do the work. So before you lay out any money, use any of the hundreds of free resources out there to find it if you really like it. And if you really like it, plunk down the money, get to work, and get yourself a job. That's one of the things we make people do, like before we even accept, because we don't charge our veterans to come through our program at all. And one of the things we make them do is, well, before you do this, let's, you know, you need to, let's do a project. Let's, let's learn the basics of HTML CSS and uh, find out if you really want to deal with this, because you might actually start putting um, text to the editor and find out that you absolutely hate this stuff. And I would hate to uh, waste your time or my time and find out that this isn't a path for you. So I think that I definitely plus one. I wish we had that type of system where we could just plus one each other's comments or like each other's comments like Facebook. Uh, <laughs> but that is a really solid piece of advice. Yeah, I, I completely agree with everything that you guys are saying. Hey, do you need a sanity check on your code? Make sure all the tests are passing. Make sure all the static assets compile. You know, all the normal things that you need to do to make sure that your application is ready for production, then you need continuous integration, and I recommend SnapCI. SnapCI is a product put together by our friends at ThoughtWorks, and it works great to pull all of your information together about your application, make sure it's ready for production, let your team know if it fails, and overall, just make your life easier. So go check them out at SnapCI.com. I, I also find that a lot of people, they, they choose the boot camps because... Um, they don't feel like they're self-disciplined to, or they don't have the self-discipline to actually go out and do the work without somebody looking over their shoulder. But what I found is the people that get the most and get the job out of the boot camps are the ones that are kind of the self-starters anyway. So to a certain degree, you have to have that self-discipline one way or the other. And so, uh, you know, then it's just a matter of, is this the best way for me to learn this or not? Um, but yeah, I completely agree with everything that you guys have said. Um, I actually have a neighbor here who's learning to code, and she's going through free code camp, which is uh, free. <laughs> and uh, it's self-paced, and they have a, a chat channel that people work through. And, you know, so there are a lot of different ways to go. So definitely, you know, take your time and make sure that it's what's going to be most effective for you to get you what you want. And that just goes back to that planning aspect that we've all kind of talked our way around and that Jerome put really, really very well. Yeah. It'd be amazing. So many of our guys, I love free code camp. So many of our guys, they come, they go through there and they know that they want to learn how to code, but they want like a higher level of education. And so they search for us. So, uh, so many troops and veterans, like I absolutely love that. Cause I'm like, all right, he can, 
he's doing his thing, and then we they they get that they get bit by the code bug, and then they come to us, and we can actually throw really sucky, really hard like problems and things that um, while they're in the cohort, and they you know they don't complain. I think that's the best part about going back and piggybacking or going and find the free resources and actually doing things on your own first. Because if you realize that if you get out of the way that this sucks or there are going to be moments where it sucks and you still love it, you're going to appreciate it a whole lot more versus somebody who, you know, they might not even touch, uh, you know, any code at all. I get uh, recommendations from people who want to help family members uh, all the time about, you know, maybe you should learn how to code. Well, I'm like, maybe you should learn how to code because they might not like programming. So let's, you know, first find out if they actually want to enjoy this before we even push it on them. Yep. Yep, exactly. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get to some picks. Um, Jason, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I'll actually do those two books that I mentioned earlier as my picks, even though I think I've done them both as picks before. They're just so good. They're, uh, they're worth mentioning multiple times. And those two books are How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie and The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Very cool. Brian, what are your picks? All right, my picks. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, plug Corporate Confidential again. So it's Corporate Confidential: Fifty Secrets Your Company Doesn't Want You to Know and What to Do About Them. It's by Cynthia Shapiro. It's a very very quick read, but it's probably one of the most important reads uh, you, you can, things you can do for your career. Um, doesn't matter what level you're in at a job, you're going to learn something from this book. There's, it's just a fantastic read. Uh, if you're anything like me, your blood will boil at certain points because certain things will just feel unfair. Um, you know, it's good to know how the game is played if you're going to play the game. So highly recommend that. Um, another book I want to recommend is, uh, one of my all time favorite books. I've, I've bought so many copies for students, uh, and fellow developers. It's called land the tech job you love by Andy Lester. And it, it, it is your, it is your field manual for getting a job. It's all the advice that you need to, to, get a job and it, it from from the standpoint of not only you know is this is this a good job is it the job that I want is it the job that's a right fit for me because I think a lot of people miss that part they think that the the person who's going to pay them is the person who has all the power and they kind of have to do you know they kind of have to 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 bow down to that person but what's important to remember when you're searching for that job is it has to be a a, a mutually beneficial situation one of the best parts of, of that book is it starts out with the, the typical conversation of uh, the job. I, I got this great job. It's got a much better salary. Well, yeah, but where is it? Well, it's a, it's an hour and a half drive away. Well, isn't that kind of far? Well, yeah, but then I get to listen to audiobooks in the car, you know, it, making the justifications for kind of all the wrong reasons. And then it turns out that the person isn't really that excited about the job. Um, so the book does spend, spends a lot of time making sure that the job is the right fit for you, that you're a right fit for the job, and then how to go about getting it. It's a fantastic book. It's Land the Tech Job You Love by Andy Lester. All right. Um, awesome. Jerome, what are your right. picks? Well, I have a pick and a shout-out, I guess. Uh, my main pick is – my first pick is going to be uh, Way of the Fight by George St. Pierre. It's a really great book on like learning – how like life is uh, at first someone recommended it to me and I was like, dude, I'm in code, not in combat. I don't need to be reading like a, a book by an MMA develop, uh, fighter. He's like, no, man, it's a really good book. It just, you know, it teaches you about life. And I have to read it and I was like, wow, this is uh, really intriguing, really good. And so I recommend that. And I guess my second pick is more of a uh, shout out to uh, ID.me for uh, working with my, our nonprofit Betsu Code and helping us with our new platform and giving us like a better deal that they even gave the Department of Veteran Affairs. I'm very like happy that I uh, was like that we were able to work with these guys and when we debut our uh, debut our new platform on a Memorial Day weekend, you know, they'll be a part of, you know, the things we're doing to help more veterans get into tech and learn those skills. Very cool. Every time I hear good things happening for Vets Who Code, I just smile to myself because I think it's, it's a terrific cause. So, um, Thank you. I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks. Uh, the first one is, like I said, I'm working on a book about how to find a tech job. Sounds like there's one out there, but mine will be better, I'm sure. 
Um, if you want, I have an email course on how to get noticed. Um, so it's 10 ways to get noticed to get a job. Uh, if you go to getacoderjob.com, um, you can sign up for that mailing list and you can get all of those emails. Um, I think you get 11 emails total. Um, and then um, I also have a few conferences coming up. Um, I think the next three are DevOps Remote Conf, JS Remote Conf, and Freelance Remote Conf, and then a Ruby Remote Conf right after that in uh, April or May. So if you're looking for some conferences to attend and you can't afford to travel or whatever, then these are great options for that. And we're covering a lot of great tech and have a lot of great speakers coming up for those. So uh, definitely check those out. Um, and then there was another resource I was going to... Oh, yeah. Um, so two more. One is the free code camp. Um, I mentioned it on the show, but um, if you're looking for a great way to pick things up and kind of learn, it's JavaScript focused, but it's, it's a terrific way to go. And I know a lot of people who have gone through it and have really learned wh what they wanted to learn from it and wound up getting jobs afterward. Um, and then the last one is, dang it, why can't I remember these from one second to the next? Oh yeah, uh, the last one is when I was in New York City, I was in New York City for Microsoft Connect, which is their big um, marketing event. And uh, you know they invite all their big customers to come out and see their big announcements and stuff. Um, I took a minute to go down uh, to Flatiron School, which is in lower Manhattan, and uh, just checked out their space and talked to a few people who worked there. And uh, it was super cool. Their boot camp out there, um, they're right next to Battery Park. Um, which is where you hop on the ferry to go see the Statue of Liberty and stuff. And uh, anyway, super cool space, cool people, uh, great stuff. So I know they have an online program, and I also know that they have in-person programs if you're in New York City. So, you know, you can go check them out as well, and I'll put a link to them in the show notes. But, yeah, um, lots of just fun and cool stuff out there, and hopefully this helps some people who are looking to get into programming. We'll go ahead and wrap this one up. And we'll catch everyone next week. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. All right. Bye, everybody.